0: Well, hello everybody. This is a very special extra rowing chat. Hi everybody, I'm Rebecca Caro from Row Perfect. This is an extra rowing chat with Adrian Ellison, who as you can see is for once actually in the same room as me. He's visiting New Zealand because he's been here for the World Masters Games. Adrian, welcome to rowing chat.
1: Thank you very
0: much, nice to be here. Now, you're an Olympic coxswain. You've been here coxing with various crews. Can you tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself and your background in
1: rowing? Okay, Uh, I started coxing when I was at Reading University back in the UK. I was persuaded to uh, get involved because I was the right size and eventually I ran out of excuses for saying no so I got dragged down to the rowing club and I just got hooked within about 10 minutes and that was way back in the late 70s. I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time, uh, two or three years after that, that I managed to get onto the British national team in 1981. And I stayed on the team from 81 right way through till 93. And in that time, um, I won Henley, I think about six or seven times. I won two world championship bronze medals. I won an Olympic gold medal, Commonwealth Games gold medal. And I was in two or three boats, which at the time set world best times. So I had a pretty good time. But And were you mostly in eggs? Everything. Uh, back then the international scene still contained coxed pairs and coxed fours. Mm-hmm. The first international boats I ever coxed was actually a pair in 1981. And then that pair went into a four the following year. I was in the Olympic four in 1984, and I also steered a number of top level eights. So everything.
0: So tell us about your very first coach. Who do you remember
1: at the university teaching you the beginnings? Uh, there was a guy called Tony Martin. Uh, and another one called Tony Tinkle, who were coaching at Reading University. And um, again, I was just very lucky, I guess. I was put into the novice aid with um, a very enthusiastic coach who helped me to pick up the basics of coxing, steering, and knowing what to say and what to do. And I was also lucky that the coach of the first eight was at the time the chairman of the British Amateur Rowing Association. And I guess he must have recognised a tiny little bit of talent uh, and he put me in the right place at the right time to ultimately end up getting into the team three years later. So tell us a little bit
0: about the international side, because obviously it was still an amateur sport in those days and people rode and had jobs or were students and rode. How did they run
1: that first selection? Uh, The first time I got onto the team in 81, I was just down at one of the Putney Rowing Clubs meeting up with a friend and there was one of the board of selectors who was down there as well and he said to me, "Um, you need to make a couple of phone calls. Penny Tutor's uh, national squad eight had just been beaten at Henley Royal Regatta by what was basically the Oxford blue boat with a couple of international subs put in as well. So Penny's eight was going to go back into the melting pot and they were going to create a new eight from her boat and the Oxford boat and the University of London under 23 eight, which had just won the gold medal in the under 23s. And I was recommended to get in touch with uh, the coach of the Oxford boat, Dan Polskin, and the coach of the UL boat, Rusty Williams. So I made a couple of phone calls, and Dan told me that they were perfectly happy with the cops that they'd got. Thank you very much. And Rusty said, uh, well, actually, we do need a Cox because the guy we've had in the eight was about five or six kilos overweight for a pair. They could get away with it in the eight but not in the pair. So he said, uh, we're going to have a trial. We've got three oarsmen in contention for this boat. So we want to see which combination of these three makes the boat go fastest. And if you come down, we can put you in the boat as well and see if you can steer straight. And it turned out that I couldn't steer straight, but nevertheless, um, they didn't have anybody else, so I got selected in the boat. And we then had two or three weeks training to try to work out how to move a cox pair, which none of the three of us had any idea. And we got people like Bob Janicek to come along and help, giving us some coaching advice. Um, Bob's main input was basically, you've just got to get out there and bash the dumb thing. That's more or less a quote directly from him. So we went over to Thorpe Park at the west of London, where the squad were doing most of their training at that time. And it was a gravel pit about 1500 meters long. And we ended up doing best of three race with UL pair, Oxford pair, two guys from there winning blue boat, and the Kingston pair who had been representing Great Britain up till that time through the summer. It was meant to be best best of three, over 1500 meters. We won the first one by, I think, about nine seconds. So convincingly that Penny, the chief coach, came zooming up in a Zodiac to everybody and said, we don't need to do any more. You can all go home. That's it. You're the pair. So we just got selected just like that. And we then had about a month uh, of training as the Cox pair before we raced in Munich in the World Championships. and We were all very green and naive and innocent about it all. We we knew we were going fast from the times we were doing on the training camp, but we had no idea how fast. In our heat, we were drawn against all three crews which had won medals in the Moscow Games the year before. Um, But again, we were were so green and naive, it didn't really faze us or get us worried or nervous or anything. We won the heat and that put us straight into the final. We then discovered we were the first ever British Cox pair to get into a World Championship final, which was interesting. Uh, And in the final itself, we just managed to get a bronze medal ahead of the Czechs by about, about all. So we were not only the first pair to get into a final, but we were obviously the first one to get a medal as well. And at that point, um, it was, to be honest, relatively easy to stay on the British team. There were not that many outstandingly good Coxes competing for places, and there were three places, because there was the pair and the four and the eight. So unless you really messed up, you could pretty much stay there as long as you wanted to um if you had the ability to to do the training around having a job of some sort okay so let's just pause there for a
0: moment so early 80s athletes were self-funded you trained once or twice a day at a dispersed location so there wasn't a centralized training center um and had you finished your university studies at this point
1: yes I'd finished university and I then went into radiography training um, which was a three-year diploma course and again I was lucky that the principal in charge of that school was very very supportive of my trying to get into the national team and then being in it um, to the extent that I was given permission to pretty much do whatever the training requirements were and so long as I I got the grades in my training um, Mm. professionally then that was perfectly acceptable so I I was I was lucky again in that situation. So how did the training year
0: pan out I'm guessing the world championships were in August early September Uh, how did things work out as um, as a coxswain did you start in October or you remember?
1: Going a long way back, yeah. I think um the winter's training would start in October and um we were out on the tideway because I was with University of London then, even though I wasn't actually officially affiliated to the university. And we did a lot of long distance training on the tideway, um four times at weekends, and I think the guys were out on the water once during the week. Uh, and the rest of the time they were doing quite a lot of gym work. Mm -hmm. And I felt that I ought to be present for as much of the gym work as I could, just to be there as a presence. Um, But I never actually did anything physical like a lot of coxes do to keep their weight down. I was lucky that my weight was pretty much exactly right all the time. So I I never felt the the need to do a lot of athletic work too. Mm -hmm to keep my weight down, I didn't need to do that.
0: So after that first year where you got your way into the Cox pair, what happened
1: in the lead up to the 84 Olympics? Everything changed year after year. It was almost um, like just throwing everything back into the melting pot after every World Championships, it starts again with new crew combinations. And I remember there was, quite a big debate over whether or not it would be better to leave crews alone, but it never seemed to happen.
0: Mm. So when did they select in the year?
1: Uh, It was always pretty late. It was usually around about May. Mm -hmm. Um, But in 84, it was a slightly different situation. The chief coach, Penny Tutor, decided at the very beginning of 84, that she was going to split all of the rowers, into groups depending on whether she felt they were best suited for fast or slow boats. So there was a group who were going to end up being selected for the the eight and the Coxless four. There was another group who were going to be selected for the Cox four and the Cox pair. And myself and one other Cox was allocated to that group. Mike Spracklin was was coaching it um, because it also contained Steve Redgrave who at that time was aiming to be selected as the single scholar and I think Mike and Penny reached a compromise where Steve was going to be allowed to continue training in the single uh, and then race the very first race of the international regatta season at Mannheim in the single on the understanding that he would then go into the four for the second day of that regatta Mm -hmm. And then a decision would be made about which boat he would be allowed to continue in for the rest of the year. So he was at this point, how many years into his international career?
0: He was obviously already known to be a talented athlete. Yeah.
1: He had first represented Britain on the senior team in 81. Right.
0: So same year as you.
1: Same year as me. He'd Mm -hmm. been a junior international Mm -hmm. at least one year before Mm -hmm. that in a double with Adam Clift. Um, And what Mike did with us was he got everybody training in pairs alongside each other. So it was very, very competitive right the way up to uh, a training camp we did in Sabaldia in Italy over Easter when the four was first put together. And initially that four was going to be Martin Cross at stroke. Andy Holmes behind him, Richard Budget at two, and John Beattie at bow. So in fact, that was three of the previous year's coxed four, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and we raced that combination on the Saturday at Mannheim and won. And then on the Saturday evening, Redgrave came in to the stroke seat, Martin moved up to the bow seat, and John Beattie was out of the boat, and we went out for a paddle and within. 10 strokes, it was immediately obvious that the boat was phenomenally powerful and fast. And when we raced that combination on the Sunday, I remember looking round from lying down in the bows of the boat after about 10 strokes. And I couldn't see any of the other boats at all. Whoa. We just completely annihilated them off the start. Gosh. And I don't recall there was ever any discussion as to whether Redgrave would continue in single or be in the four. I think it was just immediately taken for granted that that was the four, and that's the way it stayed from then on. Fascinating. So uh,
0: very interesting. A very different way of selecting crews, of course, than what we're used to nowadays with a rather more formal regatta format. So... What else is there to learn from your experiences of 84? Because an Olympic gold medal is an amazing achievement. And of course, your members of your crew have written and spoken about it, but I've never heard you talk about
1: the experience. I think I must have been on drugs or something for that regatta because I don't remember being nervous, worried, scared, or even excited. Um, just very, very calm and relaxed and confident. And I think that's because the crew had done so well in every race they'd ever done since that first one in Mannheim. We also raced in Essen, we raced at Henley, we raced at Lucerne, where we set a world-best time. Um, So I just think I was very, very confident that we certainly were going to win an Olympic medal and it should be a gold, but there was always the possibility that we could mess it up. Um, So there was that pressure on us, but I had so much confidence in the crew that I just remember being very relaxed about it. Now it was quite, was it misty or foggy on the day of the final? It was foggy, um, sufficiently foggy that to start with, we were concerned the race might be postponed. One or two of the crew actually wanted it to be postponed because they were nervous. Um, but I knew it was it was going to take place as scheduled, but it had to because of the, the TV coverage and the fact that the um, canoeing regatta was going to start the day after us. Mm-hmm. So we had to get all of the rowing events finished. So what sort of visibility did you have?
0: Can you remember how far in front of you? I, I remember see the
1: buoy lines. <laughs> In the first 1,000 metres, I remember that while we were up at the start waiting to go, I could see probably only about 200 metres, and then as we got through the race, coming into the last 7.50, it cleared quite significantly, Uh, and in the last 500, I don't recall that there was much mist left around by then at all.
0: Talk us through the race, what actually happened?
1: Well, uh, we won the heat, which put us straight into the final, and in the heat we'd raced against the two crews that we were most worried about, which was the Americans and the Kiwis, and we beat them both, so we knew that we were on for a gold medal. But interestingly, in the heat, I called for a big push as we went through the 1,000-meter mark. And just as I called it, at exactly the same time, two American jets, presumably from the Navy or their Air Force, came screaming overhead at about 100 feet off water. (laughs) Uh, And so low, so loud, that the crew didn't hear me call push almost like it had been pre-arranged by the Americans. So I had to call the push again five strokes later and we then went through the American crew and we beat them by clear water. But When we came off the water I said to the crew that I felt that they would get a better response if Martin took over giving the tactical calls and I would just restrict myself to giving them a commentary on what was going on, where the other boats were, what rate we were doing, how far we had to go, all that sort of thing.
0: So had you ever done that before in
1: racing? No, this was completely new. Gosh. Uh, And it was partly confession time. Um, I didn't really want that responsibility of giving the tactical calls. And I also felt it would work better if it was one of the autumn Mm doing it.
0: And Martin was a very
1: experienced oarsman,
0: and you obviously had faith that you could judge a race well enough to decide the moments when things needed to be called.
1: Martin had always made it very clear that he felt he was the most experienced in the crew. He was the only one who had not been to an Olympics before. He'd won a bronze medal in Moscow in the straight four. And it, it worked very well that he did have that experience to know when to make calls. They were all very basic. We had an extremely basic race plan compared to what people do nowadays. Uh, And I, I, in final, was really doing no more than just giving a commentary on exactly where we were, what was going on around, so the crew didn't need to look around. So my job in final was very, very simple, very straightforward. Steer straight steer straight and let the crew know what they want to know so which lane were you in we were in lane two we had the canadians in lane one we had the kiwis in three and the americans in four Um, i don't remember who was in five and six i think the west germans were in five i can't remember who was in six but it was really just a two horse race right from the very very start there was just us and the americans Mm -hmm. We planned to get in front of them right from the very start and be able to control the race and dictate the race from the front. And that just didn't happen because although we had a good start, they had an even better one. And a bit like in the the heat, they went ahead of us within about the first 20 strokes. And I remember just looking across and being able to tell my crew, I'm level with the American Strokes feet. And being that precise and every minute or so looking across and saying exactly the same thing again and again and again just saying i'm still level with his feet martin started calling pushes at a thousand and we had our first push at a thousand and i looked across five strokes later and i was still level with the american strokes feet so nothing had changed at all had another push 750 to go Five strokes later, I look across and I'm saying, I'm still level with the American strokes feet. Nothing had changed at all. 500 to go, Martin calls another push and we move up maybe one seat and then the Americans move back. So I'm still level with the American strokes feet. By this time, I'm actually starting to think this isn't going according to plan. Um, We've got to do something fairly special here because we've never been in a situation like that before. We've never been that close to the end of a race and been down. And with 2.50 to go, Martin calls one final push. And to this day, I remember the tone of desperation in his voice. It was definitely different to any of the previous three calls. And something changed, it's almost like somebody turned a switch on. Um, we, we started moving very, very fast. And within a couple of strokes, I looked over again and I was able to say, I'm now level with three men. Check back, see if I'm steering straight, look back over at the Americans again. And we were moving so fast, I even missed being able to say I'm level with two. By the time I looked over, I was level with Bao. Told the crew, three strokes later, look again. I'm level with Cox. Three strokes later, look again. And I said, we're ahead. Um, Three or four strokes later, I look back and I am level with their bow ball. So I tell the crew, we're a canvas up, last 20. And it was exactly 20 strokes. Um, Partly judgment, but a lot of luck. Exactly 20 strokes. And we just kept moving away from them and we beat them by half length. Fantastic. But all I remember at the end of that race was that all five of us, felt relief rather than the excitement that you would expect to feel having just won the Olympic gold medal. It was just relief because it just hadn't worked out the way that we had expected it to. And we hadn't let ourselves down, which is, I think, what we felt most pressure about. Well, you were the crew
0: to beat. Everybody knew going into that regatta. So obviously there was an expectation there. But do you not feel that the successful execution of not just plan A but in your case plan B as well is the definition of a skillful racing rowing crew?
1: Yes yeah I I think being able to improvise uh, being able to cope with unexpected circumstances uh, is very much the mark of a top class crew which will be able to win regardless of what's happening in the race. You know, if things don't work out the way that you expect them to, you still find a way of getting the result that you you want.
0: So nowadays, of course, with you know sport psychology and a lot of things that were presumably not available to you formally um, in those days, we would probably talk through different race scenarios and how we would vary our race plan. But am I right that you pretty much made this up on the spot? Yes. You and Martin?
1: Yeah, that's correct. I'm sure that everyone spent a lot of time visualizing independently how we would react to different circumstances. But we never sat down as a crew, or as a group to discuss it in advance. So in that respect, I think that uh, we were much more amateur than the way that crews nowadays prepare for world championships or Olympics. Much more professionally than we did back then. Now, as a coxswain, obviously you,
0: or any coxswain, is often in a position to have a very significant impact on how a race plan is delivered. And as an athlete, I know that I've been in races where there was a a moment in the race where a significant change in the outcome of the race was possible. Um, As an experienced coxswain, can you help explain to both the rowers and the coxswains listening, how do you spot what these moments are? And then in that split second, Obviously, you have to make a decision. Firstly, how do you spot the moment?
1: That's a very good question. I think it is, in my my case at least, um, it's a result of experience. So it's years and years of experience and the cliche that you learn more from your mistakes and your failures than you do from victories. Um, is very applicable, because when you don't recognise that moment, uh, and it's gone, then you learn far more from that than you do from almost accidentally saying the right thing at the right time when that moment does present itself. It's only when, with the benefit of hindsight, you realise that there was a crucial time when you should have said or done something and you didn't. That then brings home the significance of taking advantage of that moment when it arrives, when it arises in in the future. So, of course, the second part of that is what do you
0: decide to do? And I am presuming that you have to at least have a good grasp of what your crew is capable of. You have to know whether they can go up a point in rating from where they are now. You have to know whether they can deliver a push that's 30 strokes wrong rather than maybe you practice 20. You have to know what they can do based on what you've practiced and then presumably you also have to know what you think you can encourage them to do which is beyond what they've practiced in order to take advantage.
1: Yes, all of that is absolutely true, uh, but I think also mark of a really good coxswain or a really good crew is, as Mike Spracken used to say to us back in '84, sometimes taking the rate down rather than taking the rate up will make the boat go faster. If you feel that the crew is wheel spinning, rushing, um, rowing slightly short, which is very easy to do in a race situation, particularly in a a close race. With the benefit of experience, you may feel that the most appropriate call is actually to get the crew to steady and just be a little bit more patient and row a little bit longer, and they will go faster as a result. And it's really, I can't think of anything other than experience which t- tells you what is the correct call to make. From my own personal experience, I learned an enormous
0: amount about how to read a race and what calls to make to take advantage of the position you're in from a lady called Kate Gross, who you also know. And I, she was a lot, uh, about three or four years older than me, a lot more experienced than me when I first met her. And I learnt by watching her and listening to what she said. I was fortunate that uh, she rode um, on stroke side, I was on bow side, and I was behind her. And I vividly remember the first time it happened, we were racing in Ghent in an eight, and we had an inexperienced coxswain. And the coxswain had called us through a push to pull us level with the crew that had been leading up to that point. And the Cox, being inexperienced, didn't realise that level is not good enough. Obviously, you need to move through them and move ahead. And I remember Kate making the call from the sixth seat yeah. to push us on. And afterwards, my personal memory of the race and recollection, I realised that that was one of those points, the moment when the race turned and she gave us the critical call that actually led us to win.
1: Yeah.
0: So for someone who's not experienced, or wants to acquire the skill that you're talking about, what do you think's a good way to go
1: about it? From a coxswain's perspective, uh, I think that the best thing you can possibly do is to get into a crew with somebody experienced who can tell you what to say, mm-hmm. tell you what to do, Uh, And I guess in hindsight that I was in that position in 84 with Martin being in the boat. He had Olympic experience which none of the rest of us did. We also had one of the best coaches in the world, Mike Spragland, who was very good as a technical coach. And we developed an enormous amount of respect and trust for what he was telling us to do and trust in each other as a result of the side-by-side training and racing that we've done against each other for most of that summer. But as a coxswain, how do you coach coxes? That's that's something which nobody's yet really come up with a perfect answer to. But I don't think there would be any substitute for being in a crew with experienced rowers ideally the stroke or somebody near the back of the boat in an aid who can give you advice give you tips on what to say what not to say how to say it whether they want the cocks to be enthusiastic and exciting and excitable and emotional or whether they want the cocks to be quiet and calm and relaxed and just totally in control.
0: Personally I've often felt that one way of helping Uh, The less experienced, both rowers and coxswains work through these things, is actually to watch races. Now, the FISA release a video, a DVD every year of the World Rowing Championships, and I think the video only has the finals on them. So it's quite possible for you to look at the results of the heat semis, reprochages, and so on, and watch the final with perhaps each person choosing one crew to be theirs, and then you pause the video, say at 500 meters gone, and you say, right, you're now in third. What are you going to call for the next 500 meters? What do you think the technical and power focus should be for the crew? And then make a decision based on your relative positions in the race, run the next 500 meters, pause it at 1,000, and ask whether or not what happened obviously in the video reflected what you thought they should be doing. And then again, do it for the next 500 meters and then the final 500 meters. And so it's important you don't know what the outcome of the race is before, but equally it allows you to talk through what are the different options and then see whether or not they eventuate. And when they don't, what are your new options? Because it's a bit like having um, a, a, a a, a, a hand of cards. Yeah, you know, Am I going to pay, play my ace now or am I going to hold it back and play it in the third 500 meters?
1: I think what I've found very useful also is um, having the ability to listen to what Top coxes is saying. Um, there, there are some videos available on the internet mm. which have the audio recording of what the coxes were saying in the race itself as well as the the, the visual showing what the crew is doing. Um, And despite having been coxing for 40 years now, I still find that I can learn and I can pick up tips and hints and phrases um, which I find useful. From listening to other you know, international standard coxes. Mary Whipple gave a recording of one of her Olympic finals
0: to George Kirschbaum, who's the man who wrote The Down and Dirty Guide to Coxing. Right. And he has an audio CD of recordings, including her Olympic final mm. um, with the American Women's Eight. And uh, I was privileged at one point to admit her. And she said to me, you know, I really regret letting him use that because, of course, she then did a second Olympic cycle. Yeah. And of course, all her opponents knew what her race plan was because they'd all heard her recording.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, the cox also has the opportunity to be a technical coach in the boat. And let's talk a little bit about um, coxing an eight because you can see rather more than you can feel, um, because you're at the stern of the boat. When you're in the cox's seat, what can you see and what are you looking
1: out for? When you're coxing in an eight, um, first of all, you can't see where you're going. Uh, I always use the analogy, it's a little bit like driving a car with newspaper over the windscreen, so you have to keep looking around to see where you're going. What you can see is all eight blades and half of the shafts of the oars and you can see one or two bodies as they tend to scissor in and out um, with people swinging around the riggers. But most of what you can imply or infer that the crew are doing is based on your observation of of the oars themselves. So let's talk through exactly what's the first thing you're looking at at the oars? Basic timing, are they actually entering the water together? Are they leaving the water together? And then also looking at the height of the blades off the water on recovery, whether or not they are remaining parallel, um, or if there's any discrepancies in timing which are showing that somebody's moving the handle too fast or too slow relative to stern pair. And the the most easy thing to pick up, the easiest thing to pick up, is whether or not the blades are slicing through the air back towards the stern before they reach the water. At the catch? At the catch, which is really the, the most common error, even in international crews, which shows that um, usually the leg drive is coming on too early before the blades are actually in the water. And if I see anything like that, then I can tell the crew what I'm seeing, Mm -hmm. what they need to do about it, and um, just give them a basic command to to make a change. I think that's a very critical point for coxswains to acknowledge, that
0: until you've worked with the crew for a long time and practiced a lot of things together, that making the change call needs to explain how to make the change, not just what the change is that's needed, so that everybody is trying to do the same thing, which might be pushing your handle diagonally upwards and away from you, or it might be a different description. But I feel personally that I've been in a lot of crews where the coxswain doesn't explain how, they just explain what.
1: Right. uh, My my concept is that in training you need to give a full comprehensive description of what the problem is, Mm -hmm. how to correct that problem, when to correct that problem and also to give feedback on whether or not the change has had the desired effect. Mm -hmm. You do all of that in training, so that when you're in a race situation, all of that can be condensed into just one phrase of two or three words and a a prompt when to make the change, and then a very brief bit of feedback as to whether or not change has happened and had the desired effect. That's fabulous. So I think any
0: coxswain, however experienced, can follow that precise pattern of commands and observations. Thank you, that's really great.
1: But I think it's important that whatever you say in a race is something that you have already practiced in training, which is why training is called practice, because you are fundamentally practicing what you're going to do in a race, and you don't do anything different in a race. So you have to have practiced it not just the oarsman practising the technique, but the coxswain practising the phraseology he or she is going to use. I was
0: personally privileged to be coached briefly by Mike Spracklin, and I vividly remember a session after we'd been training on the water where he sat the whole eight down and he said to us, righty coxswain, her name was Elaine, Elaine, tell me one of the calls that you make in racing. And she did. And he then pointed to the first athlete he said, What do you understand when she says that? And then he said to the second and the third, all around the circle. And it served to beautifully clarify that we each had a different understanding of this one phrase. And it really helped because the crew could then go away with the cops and together form a single understanding in practice, as you. Kathy pointed out and I think that that is one of the marks the hallmarks of a of a well-drilled crew is that everybody knows the same thing and even though the phrase might be legs 10 next stroke go Mm -hmm. we all make the move in a similar way because we know that we're all doing the same thing at the same time we're not assuming that what I understand and the bodily movements I make are the same, we've actually checked that we
1: all understand it the same. I think that's absolutely fundamental. Uh, If you're coxing an eight, you have to get eight people responding in exactly the same way to what may be only a one, two or three word command. And unless you have talked it through in advance, You can get eight different interpretations. You can indeed. So that's a
0: a great starting point for when you're working with a crew that you know you're going to be with for a while. But obviously, what you do with a new crew is somewhat different because you're all new. Maybe the crew is new. Maybe the coxswain is new. So imagine you're doing your first outing with a new bunch of people. What do you do in that first outing as a cox?
1: I would spend a lot more time talking through precisely what I want the crew to do with each command. Mm -hmm. So if I'm just talking about changing the rhythm with an experienced crew, with one which has been together in training for some time, just the word rhythm will mean the same thing to everybody. But in in a new crew or a scratch crew or if I'm new to the boat, Uh, I would spend quite a bit of time just talking to them while we're paddling or if we're doing a long piece at anywhere near race pace, I would talk to them about exactly what I want them to change and how I want them to change it. And then give them the the command to make that change and then spend quite a bit of time on feedback as to whether or not they've done what I was looking for, hoping they might do. Um, You've talked a lot
0: about what you can see from the coxswain seat. Let's move on to talking about what you can feel. So when you're sitting in the seat, you obviously have a light tucked on your rudder wires and you have the feeling of your back resting against the back of the boat. What are you sensing?
1: This is where the English language turns out to be woefully inadequate. Uh, describing the sensation that you're hoping to feel, whether you're in an eight or lying down in the bows a four, from a, a sort of applied physics point of view, hydrodynamic point of view, you want the boat to be running absolutely smoothly at a completely constant velocity. That will never happen because during the recovery, the boat is always going to slow down a small amount. At low rates it's going to slow down quite a significant amount but at race pace you really want the boat to be going as close to a constant velocity as possible. That means that um, what I'm hoping to feel is I'm not being thumped in the back by my backrest, Mm -hmm. I'm not being jerked forwards or backwards, I'm just having a completely steady ride in the boat and if I feel a significant amount of check or a significant amount of of thumping at the front end I know that it's because the boat is actually jerking through the water and I then need to talk to the crew and get them to to change the way they're rowing so that the the connection the pickup at the front end is more in tune with the speed of the boat and that there is less of an element of acceleration and deceleration and more a feeling of keeping the boat moving at a constant speed. Do you ever close your eyes when you're coxing to feel better? No, but I do know one cox who did. (laughs) And? Uh, He was replaced almost immediately.
0: (laughs) I did an Hmm. interview years ago with Tor Nilsson who was a very long-standing coach and uh, uh, instigator of a lot of the uh, programmes that FISA now run, for example, for developing countries. And he was a young athlete from Norway, I yeah. believe. And he told me about a coxswain who had coxed a crew that he'd been in. He said he did a lot of coxing with his eyes closed because he could feel and understand what was happening in the boat and how the athletes were moving. And he wrote off an eight.
1: Yeah
0: but I understood that he wasn't replaced. (laughs) Now, of course, eyes and feeling are only two components of the feedback that a coxswain can have. Um, You use a Coxmate SX for your own guidance. What are the numbers that you've got there and how do you use them?
1: What I like about the Coxmate is that it gives you all the information that you want all in one go because it's got so many readouts, not just strokes per minute, distance traveled, time elapsed, um, but also the split.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And for the last two or three years, I've been coxing a crew of British ex-Olympian women who raced at the head of Charles, um, won it twice in the master's division. And we worked out precisely what speed we needed to be going uh, in order to have a reasonable chance of winning the event while we were training back in the UK. And we did a lot of long distance training pieces at fixed rates, below race pace, where we were looking to be moving the boat at a specific speed mm-hmm. upstream as it would be on the head of the Charles. And I found that the, the feedback I could get from the Coxmaid specifically looking at boat speed was probably the most useful thing that we could have and it really helped the crew tremendously to know whether we were on target or even above target below target going faster than we expected to
0: so the athletes knew how hard they needed to work and then they could try i'm guessing to optimize their power delivery so that they weren't At 100%, but they could be skillful technically. They could be powerful and expend just the right amount of energy to hit the number that you were seeking.
1: My feedback from the girls was that it wasn't a question so much of the amount of power; Uh, it was more the relaxation and the efficiency of moving with the boat
0: Mm.
1: and not slowing the boat down. So. I think we discovered that the, the technical efficiency of the recovery phase was at least as important as the power application in the water. Great, so the more
0: rest they were able to give themselves the less they disrupted the boat yes. with unnecessary movements. Absolutely. Did you ever use the distance move per stroke? No. 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 Now racing obviously is why we most of us do it. Um, What do you look to do with a crew when you are preparing to race?
1: I tend to actually ask the crew because I don't have ESP and I've got no idea what they actually want. I ask them what do they want me to do in a race? Um, Because I suppose my, my definition of the best coxswain for a crew is one who gives the crew exactly what they want. So I need to know from them whether they want me to just give them a commentary, to be almost detached, unemotional, calm, quiet, relaxed, or whether they want me to Get more emotionally involved, amp it up, amp it up, um, be more encouraging, demanding, and I try to adjust the way that I behave in the boat accordingly. So, different crews are really very different, totally. Yeah, I'm going back again to the 84 crew um, and crews. Subsequent to that with Steve Redgrave on board, it just wanted me to be very relaxed and quiet and calm and really doing no more than giving a very basic commentary. Mm -hmm. Um, Two or three years after that, I was in the British Eight, composed of ex-junior international medalists in 1989. And I was very much the experienced old man in the boat compared to them they wanted me to be much more engaged. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a, a totally different approach. Fantastic.
0: Which leads us on to the coxswain in the gym.
1: Now, I always see
0: the coxswain as the essential link between the coach and the athletes. You have more powers of observation than an athlete does possibly slightly less than the coach because you you can only see and feel from one perspective. How do you work with a coach in the gym as an effective coxswain?
1: I haven't done that for a very long time. Um, But when I was involved on the British national team and I felt that I ought to be in the gym, I was encouraged to be in the gym to just help move weights around and hold a stopwatch and tell people when to change stations and things like that. Um, Again it came down really to working with the coach, working with the the rowers to do what they required. Um, So there was no point being in a gym holding a stopwatch and shouting at people if it wasn't what they wanted you to do. It would then have a negative influence uh, I think it's much more important to to be there to help, to do what is required, mm-hmm. and again that fundamentally comes down to having discussions mm-hmm. with coaches and rowers, what do they actually want you to do that is going to help them, uh, and the classic example is when people are doing ergo tests, oh, yeah. do they want a cock standing behind them shouting at them? Do they want a cox standing behind them, giving them quiet encouragement uh, or any combination of the two? Mm, uh, and cool. again, it, it's something that you need to talk through with the individual. You know, what is it they want you to do? What is it that you can do that's going to help them? Mm. Um, you generally want, you know, oarsmen like to have somebody there to help and it's negative in every possible sense, um, having somebody standing there who is irritating and annoying and not being helpful.
0: Now, when you're on the water with a coach, either on cycling on the bank or in a speedboat next to you, how can coxswains be effective on behalf of the crew but also on behalf of the coach?
1: I think it's fundamental that you work with the coach rather than against him or her. So it's very important to listen to what the coach is saying to pick up the same focus Mm -hmm. and to reinforce it. Does that mean using the same words sometimes? Sometimes it does, yes. Sometimes, um, in particular, if if you are listening to the coach and you find that A particular phrase, a particular way of describing what the coach is asking for has the desired effect, Mm. then put that into your memory bank and use that same phrase. Mm. But what I do a lot nowadays uh, is spend a lot of time, because I've got nothing better to do sometimes, thinking of different ways of trying to describe the same thing.
0: Give us an example.
1: Um, Okay, if we're talking about that concept of keeping the boat running smoothly, so there is no massive acceleration or deceleration, no change in velocity in the transition from recovery to drive phase, I will ask the crew to visualise having perhaps a glass of water sitting on the deck in front of them. And they've got to make that transition without upsetting the water, without spilling anything, without knocking the glass over. When they've got that consistently at a high level, then change the glass of water into something a little bit more unstable, like wine glass. I was going to say
0: champagne, naturally. (laughs) Ultimately,
1: yeah, ultimately it's a champagne flute, which is highly unstable, Mm. Uh, And you can get them to visualise having a very expensive crystal glass with very expensive champagne in it and just making that transition from recovery to drive without spilling the champagne or knocking the glass over. I remember the movie
0: Chariots of Fire, which focused on, I think it was the 1928 Olympics, and there's a British hurdler who practices hurdling. He's a, a lord, I think. Mm-hmm. And he practices hurdling with a butler who has put a champagne glass on every hurdle yeah. so that he doesn't knock it over as he goes over each one.
1: Yeah. But, yeah, a lot of what I do uh, nowadays, in particular with Masters rowing... where you haven't got a coach. You are the coach. coach. I am the coach <laughs> right. in the boat. Um, but I'm, I'm dealing with oarsmen with many, many, many years of experience behind them. So it's just trying to find different ways of saying the same old thing um, but in a way which maybe resonates or reinforces a basic concept that is perhaps sometimes so basic they're not even thinking about it. I do think that going back
0: to basics and doing the basics really well is something that you can never do enough of in rowing and Mm. obviously you feel very similarly about this. Absolutely. And the different voice and the different phraseology, does that help or hinder?
1: Um, You'd have to ask the rowers, but I feel that it helps tremendously. Um, Just being aware that your job in the boat is fundamentally, obviously to look after safety of personnel and equipment and steer it appropriately, whether it's dead straight or round the bends. But on top of that, you're in the boat to try to help the crew to get from A to B as quickly as possible, and that means being efficient, and that means rowing technically as well as you possibly can. Uh, Which again comes back to putting that all into practice in training. And remembering that what you are doing in training is rehearsing, practicing. For the way that you're going to race, you don't do anything different in racing to what you have done in your training sessions.
0: Can you think of any races that you've done that have been just a monumental disaster where everything that could go wrong did go wrong and you didn't get the
1: outcome that you hoped for? Uh, I would think that would probably be the majority of the races,
0: (laughs) which just goes to show that even with gold medals, you learn you're still learning absolutely.
1: I've got no idea how many races I have ever done in the last 40 years, but I can think of maybe a dozen, which I would put into my top 12, um, where everything just went perfectly. Right. And some of those have been long distance head races with masters crews quite recently. Um, Some of them have been international level 2000 meter races but there, there haven't been that many. Uh, and it's, it's one of the challenges of the sport that allowing for the fact that there are always external influences like current and side winds and things like that, you're still searching for technical perfection even when you're going as fast as you possibly can and the second half of the race um, it's going to be really hurting. And if it isn't hurting, you're, you're not pushing hard enough. And You still have to maintain that technical perfection when it just gets really, really difficult to do so.
0: Just goes to show how elusive that perfect race Absolutely. is. Absolutely, yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Now, you've just finished a, a holiday in New Zealand. Um, tell us a little bit about your observations, because you've now been to both of the 2,000 metre international courses. You've raced on one of them, and you've met and talked with a lot of people involved in the sport here. What do you, uh, how do you see the state of rowing in New Zealand compared with your experience in the
1: US and the UK? I think compared to the UK, there's, there's quite a number of similarities um, at the very top level. There is the conundrum of how do you get the best international crews? I think the days of being able to produce purely club based, top level international crews have long gone, except possibly in the very small boats, um, singles and pairs and doubles, perhaps. But in the large boats, You have to pool your resources, which means that you have to take people out of the clubs and put them into high performance centers. And that then creates problems for the clubs because they lose their best people. Mm. Uh, What I've noticed here more than I was expecting was that the clubs in particular. seem to be based on stretches of water where conditions are very challenging. A lot of the clubs row on tidal water, on estuaries, on harbours, where you're sharing the water with other boat users, other water users, Um, water skiers, power boats, sailing boats. The New Zealand Navy. Yeah. (laughs) Fisherman. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm. I have a lot more respect for. Kiwi. Rowing club. Rowers, um, bearing in mind. The facilities that they have, uh, I think we're we're very lucky in the UK that we have. A lot of. Um, river mileage available where the conditions are much more favorable than they are over here.
0: Well that's brilliant and uh, obviously take advantage of what you've got, enjoy it. Is there anything else you can you think you'd like to add? You've covered a lot of ground Adrian, it's been delightful. <laughs>
1: um, I think I'd I'd just like to reiterate and re-emphasize that as a coxswain, fundamentally you're there to help the crew. You're not their servant, but they aren't your servants either. You're all part of the same unit and you're there to help each other. And you need to talk with your crew about what it is that they actually want you to do, how you can maximise your contribution to the boat. And there is no substitute for experience. Um, I have been coxing now for 40 years, and I've been very lucky with that at least half of that has been at the very, very highest level with some of the best coaches, some of the best horsemen in the world. And either because of that or despite that, I feel I am a far better coxswain now than I was when I was on the British national team. Mm. Uh, and I think that that is because of accumulated experience and a desire to continue improving. It's perfectly possible to have years and years, decades of experience and not to have made any improvement in all of that time. Um, But I have always tried to pick up new ideas, to listen to try to find ways of being a better coxswain than I was. And I certainly feel, my own opinion, is that I am much more useful in a boat now than I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And I think there, there is no limit to how good, how useful a coxswain can be to a crew. Um, There are physical limits on how fast a rower can move a boat. Ultimately, you can only be as fit, as strong as your body permits on any given day. And obviously you can improve that with training but there is no limit to how good a coxswain can be, other than the ones that you either deliberately or unconsciously apply to your own performance. Well, that's a goal that I think we can
0: all aspire to. And uh, if you're a young coxswain, go and volunteer your services to another crew other than your regular one, go to the high school, go to the master's group in your club, Work with different coaches, if you can, and volunteer, and that will get you a good start, by the sounds of it, with an open mind and an enthusiasm to learn. Adrian, thank you. It's been an absolute delight doing a rowing chat with you. you. And till next time, everybody, goodbye. Bye.